Welcome back, my friends. Before we get into it tonight, quick reminder, it's not too late. Get your tickets for Bigfoot and Brews. Head over to BigfootandBrews.com. Get your tickets for September 10th. Lead speaker will be Ron Moorhead, who will be bringing the Sierra sounds and some things that he doesn't get to talk about very often. We'll have Val Zalvala from the Michigan Bigfoot Data Group. He'll be bringing several of his reports from the state of Michigan. Then we'll have James Lady, who will be presenting some of the evidence that he has collected throughout his tenure as a researcher in the state of Michigan. And then finally, we'll have John from episode two and three. He'll be doing his first public appearance, speaking about the experience that he had back about eight years ago, merely 30 miles away from the location that we're having this conference. It's a crazy story. If you haven't heard it yet, head over to episode two and three. It's an amazing account. Bigfootandbrews.com. Head over there and get your tickets. They're going fast. It's going to be a great day. The event is going to be in an intimate setting at a brewery. Fantastic food, great people, and terrific beer. I'll be honest with you. It's the only place that you can get your hands on the Dewey Lake Monster IPA. Now, that being said, let's get into tonight's show. I recently had an opportunity to be a vendor at the Michigan Bigfoot Conference at the end of last month. This gentleman was one of the amazing speakers that we had there that day. Now, he allowed me to mic him up and record his presentation. He's given me the rights to go ahead and put this out for you guys that missed the conference. You get to hear his presentation. Now, there were some slides that were shown during the presentation, but after having gone back and listened to the audio, they are not that necessary. He does a very good job of describing what he's talking about as he's doing the presentation. So in its entirety, here is Mr. Robert Kreider's presentation from this last month's Michigan Bigfoot Conference. Enjoy. Doing that, I was face to face with it. It was holding me by my throat. And it felt like it was sucking something out of me. I probably should have been more scared than I was when I witnessed the exorcism. I turned and looked on my right side. When I did, there's there's a beam on the side of the tree, a large beam. It's looking at me and I'm looking at it. After I hit the lock button and looked back up, I saw red eyes staring back at me. If they're going to show multiple gods all over the earth, be able to speak in people's languages, and at that point, it kind of converge into this one entity, which will be revealed as extraterrestrial. You'll realize that aliens are the gods of old, and at that point, it'll wipe religion out of the context of humanity. No, it couldn't have been a person, I know that. I know that people can't run through the woods like that. So this thing comes into view, and I see it. It's 50 yards away from me. It's walking. It's walking on two legs. It's huge. This is a big, hairy-looking being. Welcome. I'm your host. 
this is uncomfortable. Hello, I want to start with saying thank you for attending the Michigan Bigfoot Conference 2022. My name is Robert Kreider. Um, we have a <clears throat> presentation today that was developed to be two hours long, so we're going to skate through this rather quickly. Um, as a quick introduction, I'm the founder and CEO of a research and recovery company called Kreider Exploration. <clears throat> we did about 30 years worth of heavy enigmatic research into the things most people would not touch. They were not primarily Bigfoot. Uh, mostly historical enigmas, unknown cultures, megaliths, things like that, but we did it on a scientific nature. We also did a lot of major treasure recoveries. During the decades of this type of work, we often encountered Bigfoot creatures, and they were just a fact of our existence. We did not sensationalize them, glorify them, or anything else. We just found ourselves experiencing them and working alongside them in the field often. Um, so this led to a great understanding of the way they are, the way they operate under different conditions, um, where we're liable to encounter them and other. And in 2010, sorry for the popping, in 2010 I saw what was available online and I kind of got frustrated because I saw, you know, uh, Bigfoot's riding quads, eating ice cream cones, um, obviously fakes and hoaxes, and, and as well, you know, a few good things in there, but the majority just seemed to be outlandish and distraction. So we decided to apply our research and recovery efforts and our techniques, methodology, and equipment into bringing more clarity to this subject. And I think that over the years, since 2011 is when we got really fired up and, um, and going on a hard level. And we had the, the opportunity to get in with a family unit and to, over 12 years to gain great understanding by kind of an intimate relationship with this family unit. And I don't mean we don't habituate these creatures or anything else. We just go in respectfully and experience them. Uh, most of the things we do is through trace evidence, although we do collect lots of physical evidence, have sightings and video. Uh, but trace evidence allows us to examine who they are, what they do, when they do it, why they do it. Um, something that I think has been lacking in the field. There's been a lot of supposition, but not a lot that was gleaned from physical or trace evidence and just common deduction. So with that said, um, we're just going to move right into this. And my title for this for presentation tonight is Ecology, Behavior, and Human versus Ape Theories. And we'll be touching on all these and above. The study region is Southwest USA, New Mexico, Utah, Nevada, uh, Arizona, for the most part. Although we have done work in the UP and Michigan last year after the conference, and which was great validation because it basically proved that even over 1,550 miles away from our primary research areas, the traits and evidence was the same. So we could predictably track them based on what they did with foliage and everything else. Now the foliage is different, mind you, but the tactics and the way they apply the, the methodology and how they marking and what they do remained constant. And it allowed us to have tremendous results during our expedition in the UP. So let's move on. I'm gonna start this with a quote from Sir Conan Doyle. When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be truth. And I want you to remember that as you watch these slides and these shows this evening. 
because each thing you'll see, <clears throat> nothing was supposition. Everything was based on findings with trace evidence and or physical evidence of the subjects. So we didn't log any breaks and we don't do any of that stuff when we don't find feet print or we don't find some other form of associated evidence. And everything you'll see this evening was done that way. It was all qualified one way or another. So we're going to start with the ecology. The diet and acquisition, tracks, marking and foliage manipulation, and defecation. Start with diet. So the substance of the animals, people tend to think, well, what could, what could a large omnivore survive on? And what you'll find often is naturalists and biologists and things, they look at the common dietary uh, resources, but they don't often look at the uncommon dietary resources. And as we all know, when we're hungry, we'll go dig anything out of the cupboard we can get. The hungrier we get, the more likely it is we take obscure food sources. As a primary, you have algae and leafy greens. Um, this can actually go into the conifers and include pine needles as well. But what you're finding is where they're ingesting their minerals and chlorophyll and other things, they, they need these sources and they need somewhere they can get them year round. So as a researcher and investigator, you want to pay attention to places where algae will hang in warm waters and stuff even through the winter, possibly under snow and things like that because these are going to be areas that they go to to get those resources. A primary resource in the southwest and throughout many regions in the United States is an invasive tree called a Russian olive. Um, they will use these to feed. There's a lot of carbs, high protein, and things like that. And the fruit itself is not extremely meaty, but it's very bountiful. And once fallen on the ground, it has no problem lasting all year. It lasts throughout, throughout the winter and freezing and everything else. And we find that this is a uh, primary substance for their survival in family units and family groups that are not extremely mobile, that are more tied to, to smaller areas or, or smaller geographical regions. Um, like river bottoms and things like this where there's massive amounts of cover. The family units don't want to leave these high cover areas, so they'll usually hang in these zones, and they're going to be zones where they've got something they can subside on. And this is a primary throughout many regions in the United States. Next, pinion pine nuts. In the southwest U.S., these are extremely prolific. They are very high in protein, very high in all types of nutrition, fatty acids, and everything else. A bean can almost solely survive on these type of nuts alone. Now, there are other pine nuts as well that are edible throughout different regions of the U.S., and I'm sure they treat them the same way. We found scat piles before that represented up to 10 pounds of pinion nuts that were crunched. And the hulls are extremely durable. They will not break down. So we can tell if they pass the amount that they pass is we can see how much was consumed in a single feeding. Next is juniper berries. Now these are, um, you might be familiar with gin, and these are also called gin berries. So these are the berries that are used to distill gin. Um, they're quite astringent. They're a little bit tough to eat, but they are completely edible. And in uh, winter months, off the ground, these can be collected. And a few times in the spring, they'll, they'll flower and fruit. And these are also collected and eaten, although it's not a, not a primary. Yucca stem and base root. Now, yucca and other succulent plants of this variety, almost all are edible at the root system top or at the base of the leaf. And we find this as to be another food choice that is picked relatively often and up to altitudes about 9,000 feet. Um, you have what's called Spanish bayonet and other species that live at the higher altitudes and then lower altitudes all the way down to like 2,000. And you can see here in the photo we show, there's, there's a hominid bite imprint in this. And on the left-hand side, 
what you're looking at is how they've pulled one out of the ground and then peeled the leaves off and taken a bite off the bottom of each of the leaves. Yeah, like an artichoke. And we eat them as well when we're out. I actually learned that from them. I didn't learn it from the natives or anything like that. So, Now birds. Birds are, birds are a common, 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 common diet. They, they eat birds all the time. We find bird remains and things. And I have a woodpecker shown here because it's one of the things that they seem to be able to get easily and that they get often. And so it's one of the best sources of what we can see for like bird kill and cons consumption sites. Um, and we believe that's because when a woodpecker roosts, it roosts inside of a hole or a hollow, and which makes it very easy to collect. If you know where that bird roosted or you know there, that bird went in, it's just a ma matter of peeling off the outside layer and grabbing the bird. And we've seen trees that had woodpecker holes where two fingers were inserted and just ripped the side of the tree out uh, to get the bird inside. And what you see in the right-hand photo is actually uh, this find was made associated with tracks, and this is where they've plucked and piled the feathers. And they do this frequently. It's almost anal. So instead of spreading them all over the place, they'll just neatly pluck and pile them in these perfect little piles. Now, one of the more obscure things that you wouldn't think an animal would want to consume, uh, most animals don't, I'm not sure of any that actually do, um, is a porcupine. And as you can see here in the right-hand photo, there's where a subject has defecated and past not just the skin and things like that, but actually quills. Um, what it takes to pass porcupine quills, I have no idea. But, <laughs> but it's, it's a good indicator that they're not limited. So when biologists and, and naturalists look at our available food resources and what's out there, they often don't look broad enough because they're looking at it. They're, they're, they're anthropomorphizing the animal to be a human or to be some other known, like a bear or something. These are relatively, um, what would I say, in nature, these are, are animals that don't have the ability to acquire a lot of the food resources that a Bigfoot could and does often. A uh, bear cannot rip out a you know, 20 or 30 foot pinyon tree to get centipedes out of the roots, but a Bigfoot can. And these are things that naturalists and biologists need to account for when they look at the base of nutrient value in the, in the environment. Deer. Deer is another substance meat product for them. So deer for them is like going to our refrigerator and grabbing an orange. That's how easy it is. Um, we'll see later one of the techniques they use to get deer. <clears throat> but as in this bone here, this was one that was just collected about a month ago on our last expedition. Um, and this bone actually was still moist and heavy. It was very, very fresh, maybe a day or two deposited. And you can as well see large hominid bite marks in the right-hand photo on the crest. And what they'll do is they'll bite off the whole cartilage edge off a bone and often leave the hominid scrapes or whatever as they do that. And in this picture here, there's actually some fracturing and then two large hominid bite marks. Livestock. Now, we, you can't you say, well, what's a natural food resource? Well, people have been here for thousands of years, and as long as people have been here, they've had animal husbandry, and as long as they've had that, they've been taking their, their animals. Um, so livestock is a source, uh, being as these creatures can move 10 to 60 miles in an evening without a problem for food acquisition. Uh, raiding farms and things when nothing else is available or it's, or it's been run out or whatever, dry climate, something like that, um, they'll often take livestock. What we've also noticed is they don't do it in a stupid manner. Um, they'll do it very clandestine and they won't do it a lot. Uh, they won't attract attention back to themselves. You'll hear ranchers saying, I'm missing cattle, they'll go look for them. But they're not missing cattle all the time. It's not something that generally evokes a response, uh, a police response over the land, so to speak. 
but they do do it quite frequently. And this is horses, cows, goats, things like that. We've even seen where they've drained goats by puncturing the femoral and carotid artery and drain them of just the blood after severe winter storms. And that's because a, a, a primate or mammal requires a lot of iron and sodium after that type of exposure and they know how to get it. Grubbing logs. This is something I'm sure we've all taken for granted that they do and we can tell you for sure they do. What's weird about it is they don't just eat the grubs, they'll also grub, go for the grub sawdust or the grub dust that is inside the hole. So after the grub has digested the cellulose and wood fiber, what, it, what the grub then deposits as waste becomes a, a product or a resource for food for the Bigfoot. So it's not just the grub, it's also the, what they call beetle dust. And in this, in this example actually, um, you know, we do everything. So there's tracks here. We examined for claw marks. There's absolutely no claw marks from a bear or anything. And on this particular mountain, there's not been bear signs seen in over 100 years. Methods. So now we get to tool use. And here we can see in the, in the left bottom photo, there is a hole with a couple of sticks out front. Those sticks had the ends were, of course, ground down and filled with dirt because they had been used to open this rabbit burrow. Um, and on the right-hand picture, you can see the striations are not just haphazard either. There's thought process. They're using an efficient method to remove the material. That takes a high intelligence. If we saw anything else pecking at it, there would be scratches in every direction, and they wouldn't be uniform. But what you see is uniform division between the two because that's the most efficient way you can get the most amount of material out. That takes high intellect. It takes thought process and deduction to have the final result. And so all these things are exhibited through these forms of evidence. Another method is rocks. And they, I've been hit by a rock. I know how good they are at throwing them. They're really good. Um, and they can do it with a velocity to take out just about anything they choose. Um, in this case, probably small game. Uh, we took this photo of this rock as well because there was tracks. And um, the rock itself is in a place where there is no rocks. Uh, they'll tow them in and they'll carry them around. And as soon as they use them, they leave them lay and they leave. And so often you'll find them like this deposited on top of fresh foliage and debris. Rocks for large game. In this instance, a what we presume male, a large subject with 22 inch feet, older subject, gray hair, missing some teeth by all the evidence, um, was in place while two smaller subjects walked deer down the hill. And you could tell the deer were not panicked, they were just moving slowly down the hill. And they did so to this subject's position who was crouched, left his handprints, um, and then he apparently used this rock as a projectile to take down the deer. Now this is an 80 pound, ask me, 80 pound chunk of granite. Um, we searched the entire area. He had to carry it in because we searched the entire area and could not find the place that the rock had been lifted out from, which means he had carried it in at least over 100 feet to his position where he was going to take that deer down. And they did. You can see the deer tracks come in, the rocks there, the rocks dis displaced earth, and the deer tracks get a little sketchy and then they, they vanish. They're no more. That takes us on to tracks. Tracks are a very unique indicator. To us, everyone thinks, oh, Bigfoot tracks, Bigfoot tracks, and they want to get the biggest track. That's all cool. But for us, it tells about who they are, how often they have children, what they do with their children, how long is it before they put a child on the ground. I don't know why I'm getting so much popping. Sorry for that. Now, when people think tracks, what do you think of? You think of a Bigfoot foot, like the cast stop got over there on the table. That's not what we track primarily, because very seldom do they actually stand up and leave prints like that, unless they are moving from point A to point B 
feel quite secure about themselves generally. Um, and the, but they're, they're going to be transient. They're actually going to cover distance. When they're covering distance, yeah, absolutely, they'll go by, full biped. But in nature, <clears throat> biped doesn't do the great for, best for foraging. It doesn't do the best for evading. It doesn't do the best for being stealthy or creeping whatsoever. So going quadruped is just as familiar to them as we go biped, even though they are fully bipedal creatures. What you see in the top are a series of marks. And these are marks left over by different portions of a hand. So honestly, if we all were to crawl around out there, would you be sticking your open hand on the ground all the time where you could receive damage, thorns, and things like that that could make your life more difficult? No, we don't do that. We tend to put our knuckles down, the side of our hand down, things like that. Things that are not going to affect our, our tactility or tactile nature the next couple of days. Same thing with the foot. If we all walk around barefoot outside, watch how you walk. You'll often put the front of your foot down first so you don't plant a lot of weight and injure or bruise your heel, and we all know that. So when we go barefoot across the gravel parking lot, we walk a lot different than we walk normally, and that's how their whole life is. So as we track, we look for the things like the divots and things you've seen here. And what these are is portions of hands and fingers that support weight. And depending on what they're doing and how they're moving in the substrate, they'll put their hands in many, many, many different positions. And most of them don't look like Bigfoot marks. Same thing on the bottom row. The foot in quad position can be just two toes. Um, and they're perfectly com comfortable on two toes. They don't need anything else. Um, if they're bridging a uh, muddy gap and, and they don't want to get in it, they'll often use this, you know, they'll reach over and just put the side of their foot down. Uh, the flexibility is a lot higher than a human, so we certainly can't limit ourselves in their movement to the way, way we do. They don't do that. Um, if you can imagine the ultimate gymnast and the ultimate uh, contortionist all into one, that's kind of what you've got. And then wrap it up with maybe ninja. So these are knuckle marks. Um, on the right-hand side, on the left-hand side, those are fists. So the knuckles on the right came from a medium-sized individual. Those are about four-inch long finger segments. Um, so and that, that part of the finger, about twice the size of, of an average person, maybe 10 foot or something like that. Um, and he was crouched down behind a large log where just a little bit down trail from that, two elk were walking, large and small, and the small elk was ambushed and taken. And you talk about a battle scene left in trace evidence. I mean, unbelievable. There was dirt on top of plants from the dirt cloud 10, 15 feet away from where he grabbed him. So much dirt had been kicked up, and the scuffing was unbelievable. Now, in the left-hand photo, these are fist prints of a large female that we followed in our family unit for many, many years. And what you see there is two fists. They're angled about 20 degrees off of each other, 30 degrees off each other, and they are seven and a half inches wide, and this comes from a female that's just over 10 feet tall. The spread between the two is right at three feet. So what it shows us, it shows us stance, and it shows stance as, as if you would naturally. It's not this thing where knuckles are straight forward or whatever. It's a, it's a relaxed, angled stance with three feet between them. So we get a gauge of, of her mass and her size. This is a handprint of the large male that threw the rock at the deer. Uh, this handprint was 16 inches long and spread 15 inches wide. And my hand opened up, fit inside of its palm, and that's the inset photo down to the left there. Um, and what I'm showing with my fingers on the right-hand side is the width of the, just the palm structure itself. And he had a 22-inch foot. Now, this is another odd set of tracks. So this is a young on its knees in the sand. 
pawing itself across the sand and it defecated a little as it did. Now it's interesting because there was coyote marks prints there, nothing else in the soft sand. And he had gone right across the top of some of the coyote prints. But then he doesn't leave from there. We say, well, where did he go? Because actually at the top end of the right hand photo, um, those prints just stop in open sand. And I mean, it looks like he floated off. But what we see in real careful examination of the riverbed adjacent to it, which was rockier, was a large subject had literally walked up and just reached out that gap and picked the small one out of the sand. Almost like quit leaving marks in the sand. I mean, that's a supposition on our behalf, but that's what it showed. Now, like I said, everyone's looking for big prints, and they're all big, right? Well, these are four and a quarter inches long, and this is right after the infant had first been set down. So <clears throat> they had carried the infant, apparently, uh, at least not set him down walking in the riverbed or anything like that, and he was not bipedal yet. So he's stepping with assistance in these, in these tracks and also using his hands, and there is a knuckle print over on our table uh, from that subject. A little bit older though. Matter of fact, in the left-hand photo, he had already grown uh, to five inches in about six months from this. So he grew three quarters of an inch in foot length in six months at this age. This is another track, toddler, six inch long. And what I want you to notice is the structure of the foot. Does that look like any type of human foot you've ever seen? Look at the size of the great toe and the first metal tar tarsal or the great toe structure behind the great toe in comparison to the overall size of the foot. It's humongous. No, no baby human comes out that way. And that's, this foot is to carry an awful lot of weight as this thing grows fast. This toe comes out big right off the get-go. You can also notice there's a triangular shape to the foot. Um, that has a lot to do with, with bipedal locomotion when you weigh a tremendous amount. You can't sway it. You can't undulate it. Those forces are huge when you stack that much weight. So they, they have to walk smooth. And the way they do that is by stepping foot straight over foot, straight over foot. We've all seen inline trackways. Um, this type of geometry to the foot with a 90 degree uh, hinge point perpendicular to the line of the foot is what allows them to do that. Wasn't that picture taken during the winter? Yeah, this is during the winter. This was actually after we recorded the large male kill a dog and then rejoin the family, and then we went down there and got this. Yeah, this is, I think, October, actually. This is the same subject, just a little bit older. Um, and now it's actually about a year later, and now he's eight-inch foot. But you can still look at the great toe structure and see that it's still abnormally large for the length and the width of the foot. Now the foot looks long and narrow and the heel looks narrow and that's just the way it is. But I want you to look down at the right hand picture. That's the same foot in the same trackway in a different position. And I want you to look at how different those two feet look. Okay, the lower left shows the mid-tarsal break with the compound bulge in the center of the print where material has been pushed up. You can see the exaggerated great toe structure. But what we need to realize is that's the same foot. So when we look at prints in a, in a solitary situation, someone says, oh, here's a cast, analyze a cast. That's one cast. Out of a trackway, no other print's going to look exactly like that print does. So what we read from that can't be so discriminatory that we say, oh, well, this is a Bigfoot track. That's not a Bigfoot track. Because I have literally taken two prints from the same trackway, shown them to experts. And they claimed one for certainly was, and the other certainly was not. It was the same foot, like 20 foot apart. It's just how he planted it, decided to put his weight down. They can show an arch. 
they may not show an arch. They can bend anterior and posterior both. So when we look at these tracks and we say, oh, well, that's a human. You don't know if that's a human until you look at the morphology or the geometry of the foot itself. And it's very subtle. The differences can be very subtle. This is another juvenile. Uh, this is one we actually have a title for because we, we have prints from him. Um, and we call him Amos, and he was a little rascal. And his older brother, George, is who he hung out with often, uh, raiding farms and doing things they weren't supposed to. This one, we have a good dermal print. And in, the, in the, about the center portion of the right-hand photo, you can actually see a swirl um, in there. And that's a macrodermal ridging. And that pattern is consistent in what you'd call early, some of the early hominin tracks that have been found, but it's not consistent with modern humans. Um, even though the structure is the same and everything else, we don't have that macrodermal pattern. This is an adolescent uh, with a 10-inch foot. You can still see the exaggerated large toe structure. Now, this is a, a slightly tapered foot. Another thing, when they say, oh, it's tapered, it's not a big foot, it's got to be foot. That's not real. You look at the diversity in our feet in this room, and it would blow your mind if we all took our shoes off, what our feet, and the diversity, how different it looks, let alone what else. But literally, it, it, we don't match. And that diversity is also going to exist in this creature as well. So here we go again, two young, nine inch and 11 inch. And what we're seeing here is two of them walk together. And they often, we find that the ones that are slightly older, 9, 10, 12 inches, things like that, start to become babysitters at that age. And they're often, often accompanied by a smaller subject. And you can just kind of tell that uh, throughout the evidence that the parents have just kind of left them in trust uh, with their older brothers, so to speak. Kind of the same way your older sisters, kind of the same way we do. This is an adolescent with a 14-inch foot that was accompanying uh, one of the other smaller ones one day. And uh, we did not find many of these prints. Now, it's interesting because in this age group, um, they're very hard to find their sign. The youngers, they'll run right out in the mud. They don't care. They, they, they don't understand. At this age, they've already got the clue, I don't want to leave any sign. And they begin to do that. Now, they don't have the same job in, in a clan or family as, as like the parent would be. They're not the full adult, yet they're not the baby yet. Um, and so they're not doing the things that expose those prints to us in nature. This is a young adult. Now about this age, we found with the males is that they'll often leave the family group, but not totally. They'll go five miles, eight miles somewhere, and they'll find somewhere they can go in solitude um, and kind of do their own thing and feel out their own life. But they, at this age, they often return to the family group, perhaps even twice a week or three times a week or even more. And this print, as you can see, is 17 inch print. Um, we actually put up a game cam on this one, and he, he tricked the camera by throwing snowballs in front of the camera. So he'd trigger it, get the glow to go on, and then he'd throw snowballs out in there. So while we got it, 3 a.m. in the morning in an extremely remote location in midwinter, high altitude, with snowballs coming into the camera. Right, that's all you get. This is the large female of that group. Um, She's, we have scaled her, we have photographs of her, I believe I have one in here for you, I think. But we scaled her at just over 10 foot with a slight hunch, and she has 20 inch feet. And on the lower left photo, that's my boot at the top in the sand, and that's her foot at the bottom. And you can see in the picture even, um, you can see what happens when I roll up, and then when she rolls up, there's a large flat division here, and here I just make a mound because the edges of my boot. And you don't have that with her. What you have is a raise. 
So the heel goes in, and then she actually, as she moved forward, she pushed all that out but didn't displace it, which means that the foot rolled over that section or bent over that section. So it actually fit the sand. It molded to the sand unlike a boot. Right? On the right-hand photo, you can see where she's come down a hill. Now, I can go down that hill and barely leave marks in that ground. Um, she went down that hill and literally broke the side of the hill out doing it. It just shows a tremendous amount of weight. Um, when we guesstimate weights, yeah, an eight foot might weigh 800 pounds, that's right. A 10 foot could weigh 2,000, 2,200 pounds. A 12 foot, 3,000 to 3,200 pounds. How deep was that picture on the left? The, hers goes a lot deeper than yours. Yeah, hers is like six inches deep. Mine's about two and a half. Now this is uh, tracks of the large male. It took six years to find his first print, besides the lower left photo. The lower left photo is all I had for six years. We had recorded him and tracked him with audio gear, like Russell had described, and could tell how fast he was progressing down riverbeds and things like that, how fast it took him to get from the mountain down to the river system. And it would really blow your mind. I mean, he can do 20 miles an hour um, in between hollers, and it's like it's nothing. Uh, he's just point A to point B, then he'll yell, and, and then the family will respond with like a knock or a single grunt or something single, not to give away their position except through triangulation. So he'll change positions, listen for their response again. Then he'll move, howl, long series of howl, listen for their response again. Once he's got them, he quits howling. Then he goes in and go to them. Then we often get a vocal report, which I'll, I'll play a little bit here in a minute, and of the, uh, of the gathering when he reunites with the group. This track, after six years, the track on the right, um, the day before this was taken, my buddy had spotted the, a track, and it was honestly so big that I, I was standing almost on it, and I didn't recognize it, and I'm a tracker. And it's just because the size. Your brain just doesn't put those parts together as a print. You back off 30 feet, and oh my gosh, there they were. And so I went in the next day, and the guy that was with me, I think he got intimidated, and he bailed. So he left me then there alone. And so I progressed, and within about another hour, I accidentally found and, and surprised, awoke the large male. And that was the first time I'd ever seen him been this close. Um, and it was at 57 feet. So it was about 11 o'clock in the day. And you can't imagine what that's like. And I didn't want to leave. And when he jumped up and rolled over from being surprised awake, it was like an elephant um, as fast as, as a strike of a rattlesnake. Your brain cannot comprehend that much mass accelerating in that much motion that quickly. Um, it actually put me into shock a little bit, and it took me about a month to even kind of ingest it and to quantify it in my head because it was, it was that, that brutal. Now, I've, I've been nighttime lots of times. We go out, we don't use lights. 90% um, of the time, we don't use lights. We just go in the dark, we go in the black, we work it out. I've surprised Brahma bulls in thickets five feet from me and just had them go full explosion panic, and it's nothing compared to what this was like. This, the mass of this animal was then again another third or then in plus half of what a Brahma bull would be. Um, he rolled over on quad position, and he was every bit of six foot high in quad. He was five to six foot across the shoulders. And when he turned from the position, I actually went in after a smaller subject that moved. When he moved, a smaller subject moved. Um, I can't go into too much of this because of time, but, but I tracked him a little bit, and then I went in where the big one was, and I stayed in there with him about 40 feet from him for an hour and 45 minutes. And I'll honestly tell you, I looked down to see if I was pissing myself. Um, 
because it was that scary. Uh, I've never experienced anything like that. And I've been in some really tight spaces, but nothing like that. Your body doesn't know what to do. It, your mind doesn't know what to do. Um, I shook. You can even hear my voice now, tense. But I shook uncontrollably during that entire process. And, but, it, but the need to know and the curiosity kept driving me forward. So I kept trying to go in with him, and what I found later was another subject, which was George. But every time I went to a pinch point, George went in there to meet me. And I didn't know it was George at the time. I thought it was the big one doing it. But no animal does that. If you go into a, to a point around an obstacle, the animal will move around the obstacle. The only reason it'll ever meet you on the backside of an obstacle is if it's going to snatch you. And he was doing that every time I crawled in, and it was intimidating. And of course, at that time, I didn't realize it was George till we did a follow-up investigation and looked at their hair and tracks and saw who was where. Um, but the big guy was just kind of standing back and let George deal with it. Now, George is always friendly. Been around him hundreds of times, and we whistle back and forth and throw stuff or whatever. And they, and they, you know, they sneak around you and try to cut you off where you get the river, and they, they cat and mouse you and things like that. And it's always relatively friendly. But with Dad, George was a completely different creature. He was just like he had to be tough guy. Dad doesn't like humans. I'm not going to like humans either. I'm going to be tough guy in front of Dad. And it's and I know he knows exactly who I am. But yet he still acted that way and still presented that. And this encounter, like I said, went on an hour and 45 minutes until the large male finally grunted. And it was perfectly clear what he meant by that grunt. It was, I'm out of patience. I'm done with you. You're welcome. Get out of here. You're done. And which I, which I did, actually. Um, and that's in a video called Waking the Giant on our YouTube channel. We get you information if you guys want to watch that. All right, foliage manipulation, something that's a favorite by a lot of people. There's a lot of people out there right now documenting stick structures and things. And what we tend to do is try to find out what they mean and track this and test that in the field. And so there's only a couple of examples I won't show you during this, and I'll describe one of those. would be when you take like the end of a branch and snap the last four or six inches off, <clears throat> but leave it hanging by a fine tendril of material. So, I mean, it's not even going to be there very long, but they'll leave them hanging. And this is one way they'll mark on the path they're on. As they go down the path, they'll leave these little hangers. Now, let's start with uh, structures. So, on the right, we see a structure. It's not big enough for a Bigfoot, not a big one. Now, it's big enough for a juvenile to get into or to hide young in or something like that. And we try to put together and find out why are they making these in these sizes. They can't even get in them. And about the best we could figure is it's almost like a, a protection thing where maybe I'm going to leave my kid for an hour and I'm going to go get an elk. And being protective in nature, maybe they construct either a blind or something they feel protects their young or limits the ability to other animals to get to their young and puts them in there. But also in the lower left photo, there's what appeared to be this now fallen here, but there's a couple there. One was intact. Another little shelter, it was almost like a pin. And about the only thing you could put in there was maybe a turkey. And we can't figure out why would they be building something that would only fit like a turkey or something in there. Um, and that's, you know, maybe they're making cages for animals that they catch that they're not consuming yet. Uh, maybe they make and just position a place to stick it here in an hour, we'll eat that. Um, we don't know. That's, that's all guess. Sunshade. So in the dry, hot areas we are in, up through Utah and places like that, you'll find in very remote, deep places where there's no cover, they'll build shades. And they'll take lots of foliage, drag them up, put them against something. These are quick, but they're just to get out of the sun and to basically find a little bit of cover where there is none. Snaps and twists. Okay, the twist on the right is what commonly happens inside 
of a zone where the family unit is occupying. Let's say romper room, um, where the kids can play, where everything can happen, where it all goes down. They'll often take these sweet cedars and literally just demolish them like this. In this area in uh, particular, there was three all together just twisted just like this. They may not have noticed, but if you look closely above that twist in the background, you're going to see a basketball. It's not a deflated old basketball. This is an inflated new basketball in a remote area in the middle of the zone that the kids and parents hang out in. And what we've seen there, what we realized is that they're bringing things from the surrounding ranches and land to the kids, probably. And we'll find toys out in the middle of nowhere, but only in the zone where the female will have the children. Really interesting. The snap on the left is what we see in areas where they're occupying a certain zone or region. <clears throat> and they'll be, you know, they'll occupy a spread, let's say, for a so many amount of days. And we'll go over a little, little of this later too. And while they're there, they will mark these repetitively. Like I said, almost being anal about it. They, they will do this. And we believe it's so that the, the older males and the alpha can locate the group. Um, and what we see is I actually track these until I find them fresh, sometimes minutes old. And then I know where the group is because they'll be in that region or in that zone that that fresh break is. If you have no fresh breaks within a day or two, that means they're out. And they've gone upriver, downriver, whatever, they'll, they'll make a movement. This is a rub and scent post. And if you look closely in the picture on the right, it's just loaded with chestnut brown hair. So people are out doing hair collection, and it's difficult. It's not difficult. They purposefully, excuse me, they purposefully make rub and scent posts. So they'll take a cedar usually or something like that, durable wood, and it'll be green and fresh, and they'll snap it with a thick, quick snap like this. So if you tried to do that snap, it wouldn't happen. We don't possess enough strength to put that much clamp in that tight of an area to make that break. Um, but they obviously do. And what they'll do then is rub a forearm or rub part of the body into that, depositing scent and hair. And this is obviously a signpost for other individuals. And what they'll do on this is on the outside of a perimeter of a zone that they occupy or on a travel corridor into an occupied zone, they'll set these up. Sometimes you can, once you're good at finding them, sometimes you can find two and three of these in a day. Now the hair in these can last, I know, up to over five years. So when you see hair stuck in a branch, don't just think, oh wow, man, he was here last week. We've literally gone back five years later to these and the hair is still there and still collectible five years later. Have you ever done DNA testing on the hair? Yeah, yeah, I can discuss a little bit of that at the end of the... So barriers and blinds. Now in this case, in particular case, this is during our lodge expedition where we went up to document the size of things the big males do when they congregate away from the family groups. The photo on the left shows a root ball, the left-hand part of that frame. That root ball's eight feet tall. The tree is 100 feet long and 30 inches thick. A tree that size will weigh right about 18,500 pounds. That's a carry-in. And the only thing they did it for was a barrier or a blockade to funnel deer. 
but this tells you how big of materials that the big guys are capable of messing with. And not many people have ever seen stuff like this. The tree in the foreground of that picture, same thing. And if you look up top center in that frame on the right, you'll see another root ball back behind it set again on top. And if we pay close attention, we'll see that the roots and debris, even the dirt that fell off that root ball is all there on top of the, the recent forest debris. Interesting, this, there was snow on this spot maybe a week before this photo was taken. These trees were carried in within days of this, of this episode. Territory and prowess. So there's many things they do to mark territory. Uh, most of them are like the X's we see and things like that, and we bent trees. Um, most of these, if you put them on a map, start drawing them down, you'll see they form perimeter barriers. They form areas designating a zone. Um, at the major points of entry to these zones, they'll often erect something to show you here's how big we are or here's how powerful we are. Whether they're showing you know, members of their own species this so that they take heed at that or us or whatever, who knows, right? But this is what they're doing. The picture on the left is a tree that's equivalent to the trees we see that are shoved in the ground upside down. Um, that tree has been pulled straight out of the ground like a carrot with alive with the taproot intact. Now, anyone's ever tried to get a pine tree out of the ground without breaking the taproot, just try it. It's not gonna happen. Um, and you can see bends in that taproot where they had gone around rocks or other debris or, or obstruction, um, meaning it was anchored. It, they do not come out this way. If you start rocking that tree, the first thing it's gonna break is the taproot. If the tree gets old and dies, first thing that rots is the top of that taproot. So, Neither of these are, are reasons that this was taken out of the ground. This was literally pulled straight out like a carrot. Um, strength on that is, impresses me more than knocking over a 100-foot tree um, because you, if you try to wiggle it loose, you're just going to snap it off. So we've never seen it. And in that situation, he took two 50-foot trees, pulled them both out, and used them just in that little blind structure. So it's not something that was difficult to do. It just happened to be the way he did it. Um, on the right-hand side, if you look at the bottom of the photo, a little bit back, it's kind of hard to see, almost bottom center, you'll see the same root ball I showed you a minute ago that was eight feet high. 50 feet from that, away from us, is the base of that X. That X is 90 feet tall. The tree leaning on the left-hand side would weigh right about 4,500 pounds. And that's what they're using to make their X's up there in that type of region. And again, that's territory and prowess. Defecation, something most people overlooked, and it's often because a lot of researchers don't know how to find it or don't know what they've discovered when they find it. Um, and it tells us a lot about the animals. First off is placement. It talks a lot about how the group acts together. So they'll often go, in this case, there's seven main individuals in the family group, and they all defecate together, seven vials. One is generally about 15, 20, 25 feet from the others, but the others are all in close proximity like you see in both those pictures, three to five feet apart, almost shoulder to shoulder, and they're all defecating together. And they'll do this in zones open on river bottoms and things, or they'll go behind foliage up against a cliff or a bluff, somewhere that's protected, and they'll do that. We've just, we've, in five days deposition, uh, they, they deposited 48 piles of scat, represented probably a little over 70 pounds of scat they deposited in five days, and then they'll move on to another area. Then um, we tell a lot from that. The scat itself is a great indicator of their life. 
Um, we can tell who stays in the river bottom, who leaves the river bottom, who visits farms and things like that based on what we're going to find in their scat. So their scat, the interpretation of which tells us a lot about the animal. In this particular sample on the right-hand side, you've got, it shows the varied diet. Just right in here, we've got grasshopper leg. And you've got, well, I don't know why that little guy's on there. He's not supposed to be there. But you have deer fur, rodent bone, pinion pine nut, and Russian olive seed. Now, the pinion pine nut here is five miles from the source of the Russian olive seed, the closest pinion pine. This subject had been eating in the river bottoms and moving the five miles. Now, we know what, where, that on that mountain is those 17-inch prints we always find, and then that guy comes in and out. It's most likely, declared by the evidence itself, that this is from that subject because he's the one moving up into the pine regions. He's the only family group member we know that goes back and forth that goes up there and feeds on pine nuts. Now, we get into behavior. Uh, favorite of everybody are vocalizations. And I'm not sure how good the sound system is in here, but we're gonna go ahead and run through a few. Um, I have to make sure to check my time here. Yeah, so we're almost, we're almost wrapped on time already, right? So um, let's just go ahead and get in, we'll play, so. Now this is an alpha, the alpha male and a mountain lion responding. And I may stop it early just so we can get through these. Up to where? Where's our speaker? Mm -mm. It's coming out over here. Now, can you guys hear? Can you guys hear any of that? Yeah. Okay. Well, there was the mountain lion. Um, they realized we weren't being able to pump this through the audio, so that's me running to the microphone. Um, so what we had there, though, was a mountain lion in response. Now this. That's a howl that's been digitally uh, separated from the rest of its sounds. And it's a long vocal report. They generally run 700 to 800 hertz. And then each different subject has a different fall off at the back. Um, and then that's kind of a signature to them. You can identify that subject by how it falls at the back of the tone. This is when the male joins the family. I don't know where we got that. I would love for you guys to hear all that if you couldn't hear it good. I think it's in the back. Wait. So did you guys hear that second harmonic come in? Okay, that's another member of the family harmonizing with the first member. Now, this is a quite dramatic. I'm, I'm sorry about the low volume, but this is quite dramatic because in this one, several subjects in the family do the same thing, almost like a chorus. Okay, so there we go on that. Um, So that right there is where one subject's howling and another one whoops as a response during his howl. 
Now, people don't, this is a deeper type. I hope we can hear it. Okay, so this won't produce that much bass. So this is a howl, but so low that it just basically rumbles. We're talking below 100 hertz, um, 50 hertz, 40 hertz. Uh, not, not much higher than above the low tones we can even hear, and they can vocalize and a howl in that tone. And I wish we had a better audio system. I apologize for that. Um, one of, we might just go on through a little bit of these. Uh, one I want you to hear, if you can hear it, is the length. So this is a 15-second howl. And I don't know anybody who can breath that one out. That's, um, that's pretty impressive on, on our accord. Well, another subject joins in that, but to, to produce the amount of volume and amplitude that they're producing over a solid and sustain that for 15 seconds, raising and dropping is really incredible. And we're going to move on at a lack of time. Foraging. So they'll move as a scattered group searching for individual and group food resources. So they'll often go through an area kind of just dispersed and scattered around. And they'll cruise through and just picking up individually without doing anything basically for the food or family unit. Gathering, consuming food while searching without collection. So they'll often go and, and gather food and just eat as they go without collecting anything at all. Um, sometimes we see where they've collected things and things like this. Other times the subjects will move independently and just forage as they go. Collecting, delivering food, sedentary, individual at camp. We've seen where kills have been made and then they've returned those kills back to the family unit habitation area and to a consumption site where then the family unit will consume things. And that, that can be anything from a deer, cow, goats, horses, and it's usually larger animals like that, so whatever they've got access to. Uh, we've even seen where bear were parted out like that. Using top methods of plant, animal hatch, and migration, times and stages. So they know when the gypsy moths hatch out, and they know where to be when that occurs, which slope is going to be prolific in them. And they'll hit these at the exact right times before the hatch out itself when they can get the largest grubs and stuffs readily available. And it's interesting to us because we see where they've mopped the whole side of a mountain just at the right day or two and then they get off of it and leave it. And what that tells us is that it takes memory and it takes repetition and it actually takes teaching. So someone's teaching someone, hey, this is the best day to come up here and do this. Here's the sign of when the best day is to do this and things like that. So it lets us know that they're passing down knowledge. Search is an individual subject. So often we'll see where they'll go out, especially the adolescents, will search just as an independent subject. He's not bringing anything home. He doesn't care about that. He just wants to get himself fed. Hunting. These cooperative hunting techniques are small and large game. And like we've talked in the past, they'll walk on the big one where you hit them with the rock. So some subjects will often, in a strategic manner, funnel and drive prey animals to other animals waiting in ambush and that they'll lay branches barriers and things like that that if they're driving a deer slow it just won't step over a line if you're driving them slow and they'll run them down the side of a mountain to an ambush position funneling direct deer ambush position by use of foliage barriers so that's kind of what we were just talking about again um, they'll but they'll foliage barriers can be anything from part of a tree a limb a down branch anything else anything that will 
subconsciously make the animal kind of go where you want it to go. Following direct with presence and vocal reports. So this is something else we've noticed. They'll station themselves in places and the deer know they're there. And then they'll use other subjects' vocal reports and scare the deer. And then the deer will go away from the areas where they know they are at. And that's the ambush point. So that takes collective. That takes a lot of discernment and a lot of tactical methodology to hunt. Construct and utilize sound traps to locate both prey and danger. So we've seen this a lot. They'll take sticks and branches, lay them out, put leaves in them, more sticks and branches, and they'll crosshatch them. Um, what this is for is so you're walking the trail, you can't get down the trail without stepping in something making a sound. And these are sound traps. So often in places where they're going to sleep, their uh, domicile cells, what we call them, where they'll clean little areas and they're all going to sleep in there, they'll, they'll put two or three of these sound traps around these things with only one way, one way in and one way out for everything else, and then they'll have an escape. And so in this way that they're notified, just like we have alarms on our house. Build rodent, small game traps, fashion nesting sites. So this is something that people don't realize. They'll take a stump that's disconnected from the ground, and they'll put it on a hard pan or somewhere that's hard to dig, and they'll often stuff a bunch of dry grass and things up underneath that stump. And what we found is you go back and pull them, and later on there's often rodent nests built inside there. But you can just flip these things over and check them. And that's what it looks like they're doing based on what we see is they'll set this up, and they'll just go back every once in a while and check it to see if anything's using it as, as a blind or a hide. All these things take an awful lot of thought. Occupation, utilize an area about two square miles for a five to seven day period as a family group. So the family often do this, just two square miles, five to seven days, they've zapped the resources, they've defecated all over the place, they've scared all the game, and they'll move on. And generally, uh, they will move on uh, to a different or disassociated area. Overall, they utilize a range of about 100 square miles as a family group. So 10 miles by 10 miles is enough for a small family group to make it if there's enough resources in that area. This is going to expand and retract based on other parameters. So they're going to change this area's impact and resources diminish to non-adjacent, meaning that when these resources are used up or they've scared the game, they don't just move next door because that game is the, still the affected game. The, they're still there. Their sign leads them to them, apparently. So what we find is that they will go down maybe a few miles and then inhabit that half mile or quarter mile section a few miles away from where they were previously at. Almost never right next to it do they just move down, 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 because this is where all the scared game went a few miles. This is where far from where they were, far from their own impact, far from their own defecation. Alter overall range due to seasonal weather and game migration, and this, they do do this. So we say, do they migrate? Well, they migrate for sure in as much as, so, as the game does. So they'll change their range, size of their range, and what they do and where they go based on the resources at hand. Water dries up here, you're going to go farther to find water. Utilize high rugged areas, retreat solitary and group large males. And this is again what we had referred to earlier where we found that the large males will often congregate in extremely remote high alpine regions, even above timberline, where no one is going to mess with them. Um, they pick the farthest, most rugged places you can possibly imagine. A lot of these little valleys and things take climbing gear or a helicopter to get into. And this is where they'll go into and the large males will congregate away from the family units. Grouping. 
The form family units of seven plus or minus individuals with female as lead and main mostly male mostly absent. Form large subgroups of young to hunt, forage for the unit, and often cause trouble. So we see that where a lot of juveniles would get together and ruckus around and rampage and cause a bunch of grief and mess with farms and do all kinds of stuff, just like basically young teenage humans do today. They get away from the family, they all congregate somewhere, and they do something they're not supposed to. Form smaller subgroups, two to three older subgroups older subjects to hunt large game and raid. And what we see here is, as they get more intelligent, they're actually gonna do something for real. We're actually out here to get game, we're actually out here to hunt. They'll get together in, in smaller groups and do active hunting up and down the riverbeds in a highly mobile fashion where they cover a lot of ground. The large female doesn't do that, she stays pretty sedentary, only moves when the main group is moving. She's not all over the place. But we see the, the, the they're still youth, but the older youth are transient up and down, up and down, up and down, covering a lot of ground for resource procurement. Males often move a few miles away alone when the young but fairly mature. We talked about the 17-inch subject moving five to 10 miles out. Um, this seems to happen quite a bit, and we see that's kind of a normal dispersion. It even happens with humans. Um, you'll have, you know, the college kid goes off to college and this and that, and then he's moved back in the house. Uh, and, and, you know, needs to come have mom still do his laundry and, and do whatever else. And it seems like that's very common, same thing in these family groups. Large males will often retreat to the highest rugged, dense areas together. And we covered this already, so we'll just go on. Um, we don't know why they do it. We assume it's just like a lot of modern natives do. They'll build a lodge, and there's no women and no children allowed in the lodge, and it's only the adult males or the elders or the ones that knowing or whatever, and they'll congregate together without everybody else and just do their male thing. So it's, it's, we see it both in, in humans and as well in these guys. How do you tell the difference between the female and the male then? Because I've never seen pictures of this one or that. Well, I, and I can address, we're, we're going to run out of time. I've only got one more slide, so I'll go ahead and address that question. Um, the body shape in females and males are a lot different. Their activities are a lot different. What they go, where they go, what they do is a lot different. And we know that because we've witnessed them and then look at their sign, and then we know their sign for future analytical work. So when we see mom's 20-inch 20 foot, 20 footprints, we've already seen mom. Um, we have pictures of her carrying one of the other you know, seven-foot subject away like a little kid. And, you know, she's obviously female. She's proportioned not like Patty, who's proportioned like a box. This female is proportioned very much like the Venus body shape. Um, so large glutes, large loins, large, large legs, and things like that. Narrower in the shoulders than in the hips. So she's 40, little over 40 inches across the hips. And her shoulders are not quite that wide. They're actually a little narrower. And, and I imagine a lot of that is girth and weight, because she's not highly athletic and active. Um, she's more there with the family unit. Now, we don't make that, make that discernment except that when we find 22, 23 inch, all the years we've ever been doing this, we've never seen any female sign that big. But we have seen the males sign that big repetitively in the high mountains and things like that. And the reason I say what, what, why we call a male is because what they're doing. Um, we know just through the evidence of 12 year study, hundreds and hundreds of examples, and then we deduce from that what the prints are doing, where they're going, and who is what. And you can see who's with the kids, and who's carrying the infants, and all these kind of things, and their behavior based on, and then you can see what the males do around them, and in the predictable manner, like killing other animals around the family group. Now, 
Which brings us to our, our last part of this, which is man versus ape, modern view, curriculum, and classification. And I'm going to answer a couple things for people during this very short slide. One, I want you to know, everybody, we watch all the shows, we see all the stuff, okay? It's always, what is it? Some kind of feral human, or is it an ape? You know, there's a big school out there pressing ape, um, real big. And, you know, eight foot, nine foot max, ape, ape, ape. This is interesting because some of the people that are pushing this are academics, right? We see it every day. Gigantopithecus. Who's pushing Gigantopithecus? All the academics. But what I'm going to show you here is something that we need to factor when we look at what they're doing. And our source for this will be the modern college curriculum through the lens of anthropology, second edition, copyright 2019. Introduction to Human Evolution and Culture, chapter 2, page 50. You're all welcome to look that up. And it says, believers should be aware that if they do cite Bigfoot, they should probably leave it alone. It probably isn't a large human-like ape. If it exists, it is probably a human who wants to be left alone. And no one should do it harm. Nobody. Recall that if a primate is bipedal, as Bigfoot is typically reported to be, is classified as human. Okay, so look at that a little bit more. Okay, it probably isn't a large human-like ape. Recall that if a primate is bipedal, it is classified as human. Let's simplify that just a tad more. It probably isn't a large human-like ape. If a primate is bipedal, it is classified as human. This is modern anthropology. This is modern science. Why is any scientist out there running around saying it's an ape? We know it's bipedal. There's no such thing as a bipedal ape. 500 species of apes, 500 species of primates. Not one of them is bipedal except us. We are hominin, not hominid. We came from the hominid, that's true. But in all the modern interpretation, we are hominin. We do not share, we do not still to this day have any link, any direct link to hominids, okay, other than what we can see inferred through the fossil record. So far, everything that's been a human ancestor, whether, whether it be Astropolithecus, whether it be Denisovan, whether it be Heidelbergensis, all these are fully bipedal. We don't have anything in between that, and that's a fact. And what makes that decision between an ape and a human is bipedalism. So no matter what, if Bigfoot is up walking around on two feet comfortably, as a main mode of movement and travel, we have to regard it as a human being. This steps on a lot of people's toes, but it gets me is why are scientists perpetuating ape when their own definition classifies it as human? Now I'm gonna end this with a quote by Albert Einstein. The fairest thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion which stands at the cradle of true art and science. Now, isn't that funny? As long as it's a mystery, we're going to be looking for it. But if somebody gives you an answer, eh, you're not that much in looking for it. So if I tell you it's an ape, and I answer your question, oh, it's just a big ape from the fossil record, don't worry about it, nothing to see here, folks. It might give you an indication of why they'd be willing to go outside of their own doctrine and call a bipedal primate an ape, when they know they're not telling you the truth. And with that, we're going to bring to the end of my presentation. Thank you very much, and keep watching.
I want to hear your story. I want to hear your experience. So email me at contact.uncomfortable at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, then leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Share the show with your friends. Share the show on social media. Make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. All at Uncomfortable Podcast. And until next week, my friends, stay uncomfortable. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.